Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Today we have quite a lineup of guests. We're going to be talking with Barrett Tillman, who's the author of On Wave and Wing, The 100-Year Quest to Perfect the Aircraft Carrier. It's a fascinating history and the impact that it's have on shaping the nation uh, and will into the future. We'll discuss that with Mr. Tillman when he joins us later this hour. In the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with gospel singer-songwriter Bob Bennett, he's going to be in the Portland area this uh, uh, Resurrection Weekend, and uh, he'll be on um, uh, at uh, Madrona Hill Cafe in Portland on Saturday and at Bethany Bible Church on Sunday. We'll talk with him right at the top of the hour, 5 o'clock. We're also going to speak with Peter Brooks. He's a senior fellow for National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. Uh, we'll talk about the fact that the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, is today in Russia facing pretty heightened tensions following events over the last several days. We'll speak with Maggie Gallagher, sort of a follow-up of our discussion yesterday on the Civil Rights Act that was um, rewritten essentially by the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. She's a senior fellow with the American Principles Project, uh, and we'll talk about uh, what she suggests, and I believe rightly so, is uh, that the decision made by the court effectively rules that any Christian who takes a biblical view on the subject of sexuality and marriage is, uh, by all intents and purposes, a bigot under their configuration of the Civil Rights Act. We'll talk with her about that and what, um, what to anticipate next, or what, if anything, can be done. But first, a look at some of the news. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson uh, said today that the reign of the Assad family is coming to an end. Now, he took the, uh, a firmer stance on Syria. He aligned himself with statements that were made by the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, after the two top diplomats. They seem to take a different view toward the Syrian regime's future. Well, that is no longer the case. He made the fresh comment shortly before arriving in Moscow for the first trip to Russia by a Trump cabinet official. He's in for a pretty tense visit as the United States prods Russia to split with Bashar al-Assad and Russia blasts the U.S. over last week's Syria missile strikes. Well, in the wake of those strikes on the uh, the airbase controlled by Assad, who allegedly carried out deadly chemical weapons uh, attacks. Tillerson has said uh, on CBS that uh, face the nation rather that we are hopefully about navigating a political outcome in which the Syrian people, in fact, will determine Bashar al-Assad's fate and his legitimacy, end quote. Yet uh, Haley on CNN more bluntly said they expect regime change and there's not any sort of option where a political solution is going to happen with Assad at the head of the regime. So those are two contradictory statements. The same end, but how you get there differed rather dramatically. Well, as Senator Marco Rubio and others noted an apparent disconnect in the statements, Tillerson seemed uh, today to align himself more closely with the ambassador as he spoke to reporters in Italy before boarding the plane to Moscow. And while the secretary didn't speak directly of regime change, as uh, did the U.N. ambassador, he telegraphed that to the Kremlin that that was um, his view as well. 
It is our policy for a united Syria that is governed by the people of Syria. Now, a united Syria might be more than one could uh, hope for, but he went on to say that it's clear to all of us that the reign of the Assad family is coming to an end. But the question is how that ends and the transition itself could be very important in our view to the durability, the stability inside of a united Syria, Tillerson said. But I think it's clear that we see no further role for the Assad regime longer term, uh, given that they have effectively given up their legitimacy with these types of attacks. And presumably he was referring to the use of chemical weapons. Well, despite the fact that Tillerson uh, is believed to have spent more face time with Russian President Vladimir Putin rather than any other American, with the exception of Henry Kissinger, a meeting between them later today is not on the schedule. Instead, Tillerson will meet with the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. Tillerson's message to uh, to the uh, foreign minister will be to pose the question of whether Moscow is looking to shift from the current alliance with the Assad regime, along with the Iranians and Hezbollah, to one with the United States and other Western and Middle Eastern countries. Russia has really aligned itself with the Assad regime, he said, the Iranians and Hezbollah. Uh, if uh, Is that a long-term alliance that serves the Russian interests? Or would Russia prefer to realign with the United States and other Western countries and Middle East countries who are seeking to resolve the Syrian crisis? Russia was another subject where, until now, Tillerson had been seen as lagging behind his own U.N. ambassador, whose comments uh, on the Putin government have taken a sharper edge for weeks. Well, that sharper edge is now extended to him in the meetings uh, that took place today, following a very brief meeting from uh, the G7 countries along with some of the Middle Eastern countries Uh, In anticipation of what steps will be taken next, they discussed to some degree the possibility of sanctions. The meeting only lasted about an hour, but we'll talk more about that when Peter Brooks joins me uh, later. um, uh, 519, 515, Peter Brooks, Senior Fellow for National Security Affairs, uh, will talk more about Tillerson's visit. Well, from the Daily Caller, appearing on uh, Fox News, Tucker Carlson tonight Uh, Mr. Moulton said the U.S. bombing attack on Syria could very well be an attempt by the administration to get out from under the claim that they are colluding with Russia. Pressed repeatedly by Tucker Carlson, Moulton declined to provide any evidence for the claim, saying instead that there are people who think that. Throughout the interview, Moulton uh, could not name a single person who ascribes to that theory, and it went sort of back and forth from there. So the Syrian uh, conspiracy theory is uh, deflating, if you will. Of the strikes, um, Congressman Mike Gallagher said the message it sends to Assad is uh, don't use chemical weapons. And if you do, you can expect to uh, to be met with more Tomahawk missiles. I think it sends a signal to the Russians that their support for their client state in Syria is tenuous at best. And we oppose it. We will oppose it. We also don't share their vision for the broader Middle East. And I think it sends a signal around the world that America will back up its red lines, that we aren't all talk and no action, that we will hopefully speak softly, but we will carry a big stick and back up our commitments and back up our allies around the world, end quote. Well, Gallagher notes that he was uh, the Middle East guy on the Foreign Relations Committee in 2013 when the uh, the president uh, Obama came to the committee and asked for the authority to strike in Syria and then backed away from uh, the authority that he was given. We'll continue to uh, follow the story. Meanwhile, top Democrats are taking aim at one of their own, assailing Hawaii Republican Tulsa Gabbard for appearing to defend Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad against allegations that his regime dumped chemical weapons on a rebel-held area. The Center for American Progress head Neera Tandon, who was a trusted advisor to Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton and former Democratic National Committee chairman Howard Dean, lit into Gabbard on Twitter for her serious stance, saying this is a disgrace. Gabbard 
should not be in Congress. Uh, the former Vermont governor and, and uh, short-lived presidential candidate was responding to a tweet from Tandon that highlighted Gabbard saying she was skeptical that Assad's regime carried out the chemical attacks. Assad's uh, uh, guilt had been accepted by most U.S. officials, and President Trump authorized a retaliatory strike on Thursday in response to that assault. People of Hawaii's second district um, was it not enough for you that your rep met with the murderous dictator? Will this move you? Uh, Tandem wrote. Well, Gabbard, however, who met with Assad earlier this year, has appeared largely unmoved by evidence that Assad was behind the chemical attack on the 4th uh, in um, Idlib uh, that killed some 70 people, including children and injured hundreds more. U.S. attacks on Syria, she said, won't save children, rather will strengthen uh, al-Qaeda's attempt to overtake Syria, leading to more deaths and refugees, she tweeted on Friday in response to the ordered missile attack and the back and forth uh, go forward. By the way, it has been uh, confirmed by uh, Turkish authorities that uh, sarin gas was in fact used in that attack. They uh, conducted several autopsies confirming that that was the chemical agent used in this most recent event. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Barrett Tillman. He's the author of On Wing and Wave, the 100-year quest to perfect the aircraft carrier. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Barrett Tallman. He's the author of On Waves and Wing, The 100-Year Quest to Perfect the Aircraft Carrier. It's a fascinating history. And in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with gospel singer-songwriter Bob Bennett. He's going to be performing in the Portland area this weekend, this Easter weekend, at 7 o'clock at uh, Madrona Hill Cafe in Portland and at um, on Resurrection Sunday at Bethany Bible Church. We'll give you more details about that when he joins us at 5 o'clock. We'll also talk with Peter Brooks, Senior Fellow for National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. Uh, we're going to talk about the fact that uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is in Russia today, uh, and that uh, face-off was certainly under heightened tensions. We'll talk with Maggie Gallagher. She's a senior fellow with the American Principles Project. Uh, last week, the Seventh Circuit Court rewrote the 1964 Civil Rights Act, effectively ruling that all Christians who believe in a biblical view of sex and, and uh, marriage are, in fact, bigots, uh, uh, as the law would define. We'll talk with her about that when she joins us later in the 5 o'clock hour. Trump's Justice Department uh, says they're going to end the catch-and-release immigration policy that's been in place under the previous administration. And what Attorney General Jeff Sessions is heralding as a new era, the Justice Department is prioritizing criminal prosecution of illegal immigrants and smugglers to support the Trump administration's immigration enforcement plan, directing prosecutors to bring felony charges against those caught in the United States after a prior deportation. Well, the new enforcement priorities will end the catch and release practices of the Obama administration and expand the department's role in the Trump administration's plan to crack down on illegal immigration, Mr. Sessions said earlier today during a visit to the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona. The guy issued by Mr. Sessions uh, orders federal prosecutors to prioritize criminal charges against illegal immigrants with a history of prior removals or other criminal convictions, as well as charges against those who aid in the smuggling of illegal immigrants into the United States. As part of the broader plan to reduce backlogs of uh, in the immigration courts and to speed up the deportation process, the attorney general said the Department of Justice will hire 50 more immigration judges this year and 75 next year. 
Uh, For those that continue to seek improper and illegal entry into the country, be forewarned, he said. This is a new era. This is the Trump era. Well, the lawlessness, the uh, abdication of the duty to enforce our immigration laws and the catch and release practices of old are over, Mr. Sessions said in prepared uh, remarks. Illegal entry into the United States can be uh, charged as either a misdemeanor or a felony, but the Department of Justice's new guidelines indicate that prosecutors will seek felony charges and cases in which a person has a documented history of illegal entry into the United States. For example, felony charges will be sought uh, against someone who has two or more misdemeanor illegal entry convictions or at least one illegal entry conviction and another aggravating factor such as a felony criminal history, gang affiliation or prior removals from the United States. Well, citing violence associated with drug cartels and the MS-13 criminal gang, The attorney general said that the measures are meant to reduce the danger posed by those who enter the United States illegally and commit crimes. Under the president's leadership, he went on to say, and through his executive orders, we will secure this border and bring the full weight of both the immigration courts and federal criminal enforcement to combat this attack on our national security and sovereignty. The Attorney General, again, citing uh, prepared remarks. Immigration offenses make up more than half of all arrests made by federal law enforcement. More than half, according to recently released Department of Justice data. In 2014, federal law enforcement agencies made 81,881 immigration arrests. That same year, 79,340 cases referred to federal prosecutors had an immigration-related offense as the lead charge in the case. Other cases to be prioritized for prosecution under Mr. Sessions' uh, Justice Department are identity theft or visa or document fraud committed by illegal immigrants, improper entry by an illegal immigrant through sham marriages, assault or resistance of law enforcement uh, officers engaged in immigration duties. These will all be uh, carried out more vigorously under the new Department of Justice and new rules in the agency. Meanwhile, the Office of Management and Budget Director Mickey Mulvaney has uh, uh, reportedly slated to stand or rather to send a letter to federal agencies later this week, warning them to prep for substantial budget cuts. The guidance letter falls in line with the president's March 13th executive order aimed at making the government leaner and more efficient. Well, the order called on uh, Mulvaney, a staunch fiscal conservative and former member of the House Freedom Caucus, to propose a plan to reorganize governmental functions and eliminate unnecessary agencies as divine, defined rather in Section 551 of Title V United States Code, Components of Agencies and Agency Programs. Trump's budget called for historic cuts to a number of agencies, including a 31% cut to the Environmental Protection Agency, a 28% cut to the State Department, and a 17.9% cut to the Department of Health and Human Services. And while a number of the department's budgets would be slashed, the Department of Defense would see a 10% boost in spending. The president's proposal to decrease State Department funding rather, has received pushback from both sides of the aisle. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina said in February, cuts to the State Department would be a disaster, saying if we take the soft power off the table, then you'll never uh, going to win the war. Well, according to Axios, um, updates on the State Department of the uh, the state rather of the budget should be expected throughout the year with a final proposal being rolled out in 2019 in that budget coming in April. So we'll see uh, what the specifics are in that effort. Well, Democrats are making a close race of the first congressional election since the election of President Donald Trump. His uh, win to the White House in a Kansas district held by Republicans for more than two decades. 
Well, the special House election Tuesday is for the seat that former GOP Representative Mike Pompeo vacated in January when he was appointed to be the CIA director. Well, Trump won 60 percent of the district's vote last fall, but Republicans are increasingly pouring time and money into the final days of the race, including the president tweeting and making get out the vote calls for GOP candidate state treasurer Ron Estes. Ron Estes is running today for Congress in the great state of Kansas, Trump tweeted Tuesday morning. A wonderful guy. I need his help on health care and tax reform or tax cuts in and reform. Despite Republicans strength in Kansas, the race between Estes and Democrat James Thompson, a civil rights attorney, appears close. The venerable Cook political report recently changed its rating from safely Republican to lean Republican. However, it's unclear whether the competitiveness of the race speaks to a potential voter backlash against Trump, who has record low approval ratings, or Estes' connection to GOP Governor Sam Brownback, among the least popular governors in the country. The race also includes Libertarian nominee Chris Rockhold. The South Central Kansas Congressional District includes 17 counties in the state's largest city, Wichita. Republican Ron Estes needs your vote and needs it badly, Trump said in a minute-long call to voters. Our county... Uh, our country, rather, needs help. Ron is going to uh, be helping us big league, end quote. Um, in the final hour efforts to help Estes, Vice President Pence also recorded a call and Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who won Kansas in 2016 in the GOP presidential primary, campaigned Monday in the state for him. In addition, the National Republican Congressional Committee has spent roughly $90,000 in last minute TV and digital ads. I think it shows how desperate they are, Thompson said, rather than have a candidate who will actually get out and work and listen to people. They're trying to buy the campaign because that is what they do, end quote. Well, Thompson raised about $254,000 with more than 248000 of that money coming from individual contributions during the reporting period ending the 22nd of March. Recent campaign filings show that he's raised uh, nearly 23000 since then in large donations of $1,000 or more. Political committees and groups have heavily bolstered Estes' campaign coffers. He has uh, raked in about 312000 from January 1st through the 22nd of March. Campaign, uh, campaign finance a, f- a filing show the reported period does not include almost 94,000 uh, SD's campaign has uh, received in recent days in large donations of $1,000 or more. One of the reasons this um, relatively obscure race is so significant is the first election following a new um, administration uh, purportedly tells you something about the midterm elections and whether or not the uh, the individual occupying the White House is as popular as he was just uh, following the election. Well, when Congress returns from its Easter recess on the 24th of April, you know, they get two weeks off. Um, they're going to only have four legislative days to decide on a spending plan that prevents a government shutdown. So they take two weeks off, so they only have four days to do the people's business. With this kind of a narrow window, the House and Senate will have little choice but to pass a huge omnibus spending bill and again put off a return to the regular budget process for another day. Well, this prospect rankles conservatives like Senator uh, James Lankford, a Republican out of Oklahoma. We've got to be able to maintain our budget, he says. He sits on the Senate Appropriations Committee. Just saying whatever you did last year, let's do it again, is extremely inefficient. And that's the situation where we spend the same amount of money and have less efficiency. But Lankford added in a, a phone interview, we still have the status quo that we're dealing with until we can make a change. And unless major funding for President uh, Trump's proposed border wall is included 
included in the spending package, the issue probably won't provoke Democrats to prefer a government shutdown. Well, the current continuing budget resolution, which Congress passed in December, funds the government through the 28th of April. Justin Bogey, a senior fiscal affairs policy analyst, said he expects Congress to pass an omnibus bill to keep the government running through fiscal year 2017, which ends on the 30th of September. And then we may find ourselves in the precise same uh, spot. It's hard to speculate on anything Congress will do, but if I were to guess, I think the most likely outcome is that we see an omnibus spending bill that gets us through the rest of the fiscal year. Well, Bogey said that the funding uh, package likely will be an omnibus or catch-all bill uh, set around the $1.1 trillion spending level established in 2015. He said lawmakers probably won't pass another temporary measure called a continuing resolution that funds programs at current levels for a set period of weeks or months. An omnibus spending bill throws funding for the entire government into one bill rather than traditionally 12 separate bills for various program categories. And critics such as Langford say the approach leads to more inefficient and wasteful spending. Well, the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2015, also known as the Boehner-Obama budget deal, suspended the debt limit, raised the caps on discretionary spending by a total of $80 billion over fiscal years 2016 and 17 allowing the government to spend more money. The caps return to prior levels for fiscal year 2018. We'll see what happens in the four days after their two-week vacation to do the people's business. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock. Up next, we'll talk with author Barrett Tillman. His book, On Wave and Wing, The 100-Year Quest to Perfect the Aircraft Carrier. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, aircraft carriers have been a staple of military history, from defending the United States after Pearl Harbor to supporting today's fight against terrorism. They're the backbone of America's military strength. Yet few know how these floating leviathans have shaped the course of history. Well, in a monumental time of rebuilding America's military under the new president, aerial warfare expert and military historian Barrett Tillman, he reveals a definitive guide to the cornerstone of military Military power in his latest book on Wave and Wing, the 100-year quest to perfect the aircraft carrier. In the book, he uh, he gives his op- his readers rather an opportunity to learn why aircraft carriers are the ultimate symbol of America's military power, how aircraft carriers have played a key role in modern history's most significant events, and what impact aircraft carriers will have on the future of global security. Well, Barrett Tillman is a renowned military expert and the author of Forgotten Fifteenth. Whirlwind, and dozen other uh, military histories. The Wall Street Journal hailed him as a master storyteller, and Pulitzer Prize winner Stephen Hunter called Whirlwind a, 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 mil, a miracle rather, of military history. Mr. Tillman's work has been cited in dozens of history books and has been used as coursework by the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps. Additionally, he is familiar a television commentator on the History Channel and National Geographic Channel. Mr. Tillman joins us today to talk about his latest book, A Fascinating History of Uh, aircraft carriers on wave and wing the 100 year quest to perfect the aircraft carrier thank you so much for joining us well it's my pleasure to be aboard (laughs) well um, i have a a nephew who is training right now to be a captain of a ship uh, in the uh, u.s navy and so this is a fascinating subject for me and i know for many of our listeners what uh, what uh, compelled you to take on the subject of the history of the aircraft carrier and uh, to communicate that message with the public that's largely ignorant of that history? Well, a lot of my uh, previous work, both uh, books and magazines, 
had uh, focused on naval aviation, and usually that means aircraft carriers. So it occurred to me a couple of years ago that we were approaching the centennial of the world's first true aircraft carrier, which was uh, HMS Furious, commissioned by the British Royal Navy in World War One, and. Uh, for whatever reason, nobody else was taking note of that fact, so it, it just seemed a, a rare opportunity to fill the gap and to help people learn about how important aircraft carriers are. I think that just the word aircraft carrier is such a marvel when you think about how it's possible that a floating ship can somehow accommodate uh, aircraft that not only uh, take off but also land uh, on it. it, it's just an, a marvel to consider, and I think looking back to its origins uh, helps us to appreciate what that really means. Especially when you consider that in uh, 1910 and 1911, the first shipboard operations by fixed-wing aircraft, as opposed to uh, balloons, uh, were conducted on uh, the east and the west coast by a pioneer aviator, uh, uh, Glenn Curtis, and uh, one of his pilots who, by the way, Eugene Ely, had uh, gotten the flying bug when he was a uh, uh, automobile dealer in Portland. So I'm a fourth-generation Oregonian myself. Ah. I live on now, so I, I took some pride in, in that origin. Now, in your prologue, you begin uh, by reminding us of the events of Pearl Harbor and that the battleship was the master of the world's oceans. Um, How did we evolve from the battleship to the aircraft carrier? And what was the mitigating circumstance that led to an effort to try to um, transform a battleship into one that could accommodate uh, flight? Well, with uh, HMS Furious in 1917 and 1918, it had been uh, overgunned and underbuilt. It had a huge uh, main battery of 18-inch guns, and by comparison, the biggest uh, battleship guns the U.S. Navy ever uh, installed were 16 inches. So the uh, lordships of the Admiralty realized that touching off a couple of those 18 inches on the battle cruiser Furious was a... Uh, uh, serious problem. It was causing structural damage. So they scratched their collective heads and said, what else can we do with this ship? And what they decided to do was put uh, uh, takeoff and landing platforms fore and aft. And over the next uh, several years, the configuration of the carrier as we know it today uh, quickly emerged. And that is uh, what we now call a through deck design with a, uh, a flat uh, fore and aft uh, takeoff and landing surface, usually with what they call the island. That's the structure usually on the right hand or the starboard side. And uh, that uh, configuration emerged shortly after World War One, and it was uh, so successful that we still see it today. Mm. You, in the first chapter of the book on the Great War, show an image of a civilian pilot taking off from the cruiser USS Birmingham at uh, Hampton Roads, Virginia, in November of 1910, which is a a pretty amazing image uh, to see in view of what we are witnessing in the 21st century and the the capacity of an aircraft carrier today. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, When Eugene Ely trundled his uh, Curtis Pusher off the uh, the forward end of the, the cruiser Birmingham, he really didn't know, and I, I doubt that very many other people did, uh, that he was, in essence, 
ending millennia of, uh, of the conventional wisdom of, about what constituted sea power. And the uh, rate of progress of uh, aviation was such that in a couple of decades, uh, no more than three decades downstream from uh, 1910 and 11, aircraft had uh, developed the capability to destroy battleships, both in port, as we saw at Pearl Harbor, and previously uh, what the British did at the Italian base of Toronto. So uh, there was a dramatically fast reversal of the uh, uh, epitome of seagoing world power, and that was the shift from the battleship to the carrier. What impact have aircraft carriers had in some modern history's most significant events, World War II, the Cold War, Vietnam, uh, today's fight against terrorism? Well, I'm, I say in the book on Wave and Wing that the uh, Japanese probably could not have started World War II in the Pacific without aircraft carriers because there was uh, simply no other efficient or effective way of initiating hostilities, especially with a surprise attack on our um, uh, main fleet base in, in Hawaii at Pearl Harbor. So that set the tone for the the next uh, 12 to 18 months in the Pacific because uh, most of America's battleships were destroyed or damaged at Pearl Harbor, and that left only aircraft carriers to conduct effective uh, offensive operations. And over the next uh, several months, for the first time in history, there were fleet engagements, that is, multi-ship uh, naval battles fought beyond the range of human vision. And that first occurred in the Coral Sea near Australia in May of 42, and it peaked at Midway off uh, the Hawaiian Islands a month later. And then uh, two more carrier battles in the Solomon Islands during the Guadalcanal campaign. So it was, a uh, uh, again, a rapid transition of what people recognized as the pinnacle of sea power, and that was the carrier. Mm-hmm. Now, in reshaping America's military, there was somewhat of a competition in the War Department uh, and the Navy Department. Uh, uh, there was, of course, the Naval Aviation, and then there's the Air Force. Um, talk a little bit about that period. In I think it started in 47, in which the, the debate was over how to configure the U.S. military and what role the Navy would play as opposed to the uh, Air Force would play in terms of aviation. No, that's exactly right. In 1947... The uh, Department of Defense was established by Congress, which unified uh, both the Army and the Navy, and as of that year, the newly independent U.S. Air Force. And as you note, there was a bitter, prolonged uh, doctrinal and political and actually financial battle in uh, Washington, D.C., as to where the United States was going to put most of its uh, military bucks, and obviously the the Cold War had uh, begun. We were looking at a long-term adversary in the, the form of the Soviet Union, and the Air Force, being dominated by the heavy bomber crowd, thought that uh, the the best deterrent was uh, at that time the uh, the giant uh, Condor B-36 intercontinental bomber. And the Navy, which was scrambling to catch up with the Air Force and the ability to deliver nuclear weapons, proposed a a new generation of supercarriers, and uh, their descendants are what we see today. So 
uh, neither side won that battle, but it uh, it it was hard fought. It was bitter, and uh, as I mentioned in uh, the book on Wave and Wing, it left uh, professional bloodstains from the marbled halls of the <laughs> Pentagon. Yeah, we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. We're talking with Barrett Tillman. He's the author of On Wave and Wing, the 100-year quest to perfect the aircraft carrier. 46 minutes after 4 o'clock, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Barrett Tillman. He's the author of the of On Wave and Wing, The 100-Year Quest to Perfect the Aircraft Carrier. You write about naval disasters and point out that after World War II, uh, 21 years passed without any uh, anything comparable uh, to Bunker Hill and Franklin in 1945. Then the Navy suffered three uh, catastrophic carrier fires during the Vietnam War, uh, none of which was a result of, of combat uh, or, or conflict. Uh, talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the challenge of uh, just safety. Um, in the cases of these three uh, disasters, it, it, was the resp- it was the consequence of people doing their job on board ship, but inadvertently um, starting a, a, what ended up being a disaster. Yeah, the uh, the worst of those was the the first one aboard the uh, USS Oriskany, which was a uh, Essex class carrier of World War II vintage, that like most of its sisters had been modified to uh, operate jets. And in 1966, uh, the uh, O boat, as their sailors called it, was operating off uh, the coast of Vietnam and uh, had uh, uh, finished some. Uh, night operations, and two partially trained sailors mishandled some flares that uh, uh, had been offloaded from aircraft, and one of the flares accidentally ignited, and the, uh, the one sailor panicked and threw it into a locker with several hundred other flares, and the two uh, youngsters uh, locked the door, dogged the hatches, they say, and a few minutes later, the uh, uh, explosion was catastrophic, and it killed, uh, uh, I think, about 130 people and destroyed the uh, most of the aircraft uh, aboard. And then uh, uh, over the next couple of years, there were two other significant uh, fires, as you say, neither in combat. Uh, the first was aboard the uh, USS Forrestal, which was the first of the supercarriers from the uh, post-World War II era. And uh, then uh, the Enterprise was operating in uh, Hawaiian waters. And both of those catastrophes were the, uh, the result of uh, uh, misplaced uh, heaters. They're called APUs or auxiliary power units, which are used to start jet engines. And the... Uh, Flight deck crews had accidentally pointed one of the uh, APU's vents at a uh, uh, a loaded aircraft, which uh, cooked off, as they say, the ordnance on that airplane, and uh, those resulted in uh, catastrophic fires on the hangar deck, but uh, they were not as significant as the Ariskines had been. So as a result of those uh, procedural Errors. The Navy convened a, uh, a board that examined uh, all safety operating procedures aboard aircraft carriers, and uh, it's been extremely successful because we've had nothing similar since then. It does point to just how incredibly uh, volatile these um, 
ships could be if that kind of care was not taken. I think we sometimes take for granted that, um, you know, these ships are, are perfectly safe, but they have to be carefully managed. And I know there are lots of uh, redundant uh, ways of making sure things are done properly. Uh, it really is a marvel that we haven't had uh, serious events like those you've just described in recent years. Well, I think it speaks uh, very highly of uh, the uh, first, the state of training that uh, our sailors received today, and also the high degree of professionalism that characterizes just about all of naval aviation, whether it's ashore or afloat. For instance, uh, in the late 40s and early 50s, uh, when uh, the Navy was transitioning largely from uh, propeller aircraft to jets, the accident rate aboard uh, aircraft carriers was horrendous to the point that there was some doubt that uh, carriers would be able to continue as they had before because of the uh, the higher landing speeds and the different operating procedures with jets. But now, of course, it's uh, just business as usual, and we, we don't want to get complacent by any means, but... Uh, Carriers operate routinely with an extremely high degree of safety, and that means that they're better able to focus on their actual missions. Now, how will aircraft carriers shape the future of global security, particularly when we consider that China recently developed its first aircraft carrier? Well, that's true. The, uh, uh, the United States is not in any way, shape, or form in, in danger of losing carrier supremacy. Uh, you can add up all the others uh, that are... Uh, sailing the world's oceans today, and none come remotely close. But uh, the Chinese seem the most determined to build their uh, carrier capability, and they, like the Indian Navy, had uh, purchased an incomplete carrier from Russia after the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, the Chinese have been operating their first carrier, I think, since uh, 2012. And now they're nearing completion of their first indigenous or homegrown carrier. And depending upon the sources you consult, uh, that could be the first of uh, three or maybe six uh, uh, Chinese-designed and built carriers. So the, uh, the aircraft carrier is in no danger of going away. How much of China's progress with regard to aircraft uh, carriers is the result of st- stealing essentially the ideas of the United States and replicating them. Well, uh, it, it's really hard to know how much is the result of espionage and how much is just common sense. There's a, uh, a statement in uh, engineering that form follows function. And once you decide to operate high-performance aircraft from a ship at sea, that pretty much defines the uh, configuration, which, as I said, in on wave and wing, it goes all the way back to uh, World War One. But the uh, uh, the Chinese and the Indians use what we call the uh, ski jump method of launch. And if you look at photos online of uh, of their ships, they have a pronounced uh, uh, ramp instead of the uh, the flat flight deck that we have that goes up to the uh, the pointy end of the boat. Mm-hmm. The sailors say, and uh, the Chinese and the Indians chose the uh, uh, ski ramp launch uh, option because it's much, much easier to uh, manufacture and to operate. But the downside is that uh, it cannot begin to launch the uh, heavy aircraft that we do with our uh, steam-powered catapults. And now there's a new electromagnetic technology in enabling us in uh, the USS Ford and the uh, follow-on ships of that class 
to launch increasingly heavy aircraft. So uh, I'm pretty sure the Chinese are going to uh, adopt catapults themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, why are aircraft carriers, as you point out in the book, the ultimate symbol of America's military power? The main reason is that, uh, uh, if you recall your grade school geography, planet Earth is about 70% water, and aircraft carriers can appear almost anywhere uh, in that huge expanse, and especially on the peripheries of all the continental land masses. And that's probably the biggest reason that the, uh, the Soviet Navy was so concerned with uh, opposing American aircraft carriers because if it came to a fully developed war at sea, uh, at that time we had about uh, 15 attack carriers plus anti-submarine carriers, and uh, not that we would have them all at sea at the same time, but uh, that was an awful lot of seagoing air power that could project power over uh, lengthy distances. And hand-in-glove with the... uh, uh, reach of aircraft carriers is what we call territorial independence. And because so much of the uh, planet's uh, surface is water, that means that carriers can go almost anywhere without the uh, political or uh, uh, geographic limitations that some uh, wavering allies might impose to prevent us from operating ashore. Uh, we only have about a minute, but what do you think the future looks like for the aircraft carrier? It's pretty bright. The uh, The United States uh, is fully committed, both uh, militarily and uh, uh, geostrategically and industrially, to building more aircraft carriers. And as I say, the, uh, the Chinese and the Indians uh, have theirs. The, the Russians are operating one, which has been in the Mediterranean uh, as recently as this year. And Britain is preparing to complete uh, two brand-new carriers, having gotten out of the, uh, the business uh, of fixed-wing uh, tailhook aircraft carriers in 1976. So uh, the, the world's navies are paying close attention. Mm. Well, I thank you so much for the book, for taking time to talk with us, and I would certainly encourage our listeners uh, to look more deeply. The book is titled On Wave and Wing, The 100-Year Quest to Perfect the Aircraft Carrier. Barrett Tillman, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. We're going to take a quick break. News and traffic up next. When we return, we'll talk with uh, Bob Bennett, the gospel singer, songwriter. He's coming to Portland. We'll give you all the details. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Five minutes after five o'clock is our time. Well, I'm excited because Bob Bennett is coming back to the Portland metro area. And I, I don't know, we must be doing something right because he's coming back again. He's a gospel singer, songwriter. For some of you youngins who aren't familiar with his music, you need to familiarize yourself with him. And before I uh, bring, up, uh, bring him up in just a moment, I want to brag on him just a bit. Uh, his ability to write songs about um, other than typical spiritual topics has always made him something of a standout. He sees spiritual themes everywhere, even in the least holy of circumstances, any His approach to ministry follows the same line of reasoning, that our life is intricately woven with the sacred and the human, and that honest communication is ultimately most effective. He's always uh, lurked outside the fringes of contemporary Christian music. He's crafted songs that detail not only his joys and victories, but also his disappointments, his struggles and failures. You know, the stuff all of us uh, face. His acoustic folk style recordings have honestly confronted the messy side of human existence over the years, but those have uh, discovered his 
his depth, his wit, his honest and uh, honesty and musicianship consider him to be one of Christian music's foremost songwriters. So if you're not familiar with Bob Bennett, that in and of itself ought to send you to Google right away or YouTube to hear some of his music. He was born in Downey, California in 1955. He picked up his first guitar at age nine. He formed a rock band uh, in high school. In the late 70s, he converted to Christianity and his songwriting began to reflect his newfound faith. His career was launched with the release of his 1979 folk-style debut recording, First Things First. Three years later came Matters of the Heart, a recording contemporary Christian music magazine voted 1982's Album of the Year, ranking it among the top 20 contemporary Christian albums of all time, including the one we're in. Well, soon after the release of his next recording, Nonfiction, he served as opening act for Amy Grant's unguarded tour, uh, Lord of the Past, a compilation followed with uh, its title song reaching number one on the Christian radio charts in early 1990, followed by his second number one song, Yours Alone. Some of you know exactly what those songs sound like. Later that year, he joined Michael Card on his Way of Wisdom tour, uh, performing in front of sold-out audiences all across the country. Songs from Bright Avenue was released in 1991, and in 2002, he signed with Steve Bell's um, Signpost Music, which yielded The View from here, uh, part of a series of simpler production albums. He uh, was involved in a number of collaborative projects. Um, They followed, and in 2009, he wrote and recorded his first holiday collection, Christmas Tide, uh, which featured many newly written songs for the season, as well as some eclectic covers. Um, his latest release is Joy Deep uh, as Sorrow, the, co- the uh, completion of which, rather, was generously crowdfunded via a kickstart campaign. Well, he's coming to the Portland area, and we are just delighted to um, to welcome him back. Uh, he's going to be, let's see, on the 15th, which is this Saturday, at Madrona Hill Cafe in Portland, and at uh, on Resurrection Sunday, he's going to be at Bethany Bible Church. But before we get to all of that, I just want to say welcome. It's nice to have you back, Bob Bennett. Thank you so very much. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm, I can't tell you how happy I am to be coming back to Portland. I haven't... Uh... Haven't played there for a couple of years, and so it's going to be good to get back up there. Well, we're glad to have you, and I know uh, a lot of our listeners who weren't yet aware are going to be thrilled to know that you're going to be back as well. So what brings you back to the Portland area? I know you're a busy guy. If you're not writing, you're singing and performing. Um, what what keeps you going? Well, I mean, I you know, I just love my job. I mean, I, this, I've pretty much done this full-time since I was, uh, oh gosh, in my early 20s, so... You know, I mean, in one sense, I mean, I get to do the one thing that I've always wanted to do, but it's also, it, I've also kind of painted myself into a corner. I think it's the only thing I know how to do very well. So, um, but I just love it. This particular invitation, I, I do an awful lot of private house concerts where people come in and, and uh, they'll just have me come and play in their home. I love doing this sort of thing. And a couple of years ago, uh, my friend Don uh, Johnston uh, called me and asked me to come and play in her home. And so that led to a friendship that then led to this latest invitation. So I'm glad to be going back to be with Pastor Greg at Bethany and then also Madrona the night before. And um, so I'm looking forward to a great weekend. Now, you've been a Christ follower for many years now. Uh, and as you mature in the faith, have faith rather, have you, the themes of your music changed dramatically? Or do you find that there are similar themes, but perhaps from a different vantage point? Well, I, yeah, I, mean, I think the answer is probably, you know, all of the above, because, 
you know, as you age and I mean, as you grow and age, just as a human, regardless of your faith mm-hmm. practice, that causes changes. But then also, you hope that you know, ten, twenty, thirty years down the line, in your life as a, as a Christian, that you you know that God is going to be molding you into the type of person that He wants you to be. You're going to figure out a few things that maybe you you couldn't you know didn't or couldn't know, you know, twenty, twenty five years ago. There's 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 no substitute for walking the walk, and there's no substitute for uh, the passage of time for just for God's faithfulness to uh, to just sort of mold you and grow you up a little bit. So yeah, things. I think the other thing is, as opposed to some of the earlier albums, um, I came to find, at least in my own uh, life, that as a Christian, my artistic mandate is the broadest, not the narrowest. We have a tendency to think. That if we're people of faith, we can only sing, you know, direct force spiritual laws songs, or that our <laughs> art has to take a certain type of utilitarian mm-hmm. form or whatever. And I happen to think that, that that the opposite is true: is that we have the the broadest and most permissive mandate because of of God's, uh, you know, we, we can tell a lot about God by His creativity. He's not synonymous with His creation in the same way that some believe everything is God. But we can certainly tell a lot about his creativity, and of course he passes that along to us. So I, I just love having a hand in this. Mm. Now, as the culture has changed over the last few decades, is it more challenging to communicate the message that the messages, if you will, that you bring in your music? You're creative. You're a storyteller. Has it been more challenging, or do you find people have come back to the simple truth of a story well, well told to music? Well, this is an interesting question. I'm glad you brought it up. It. it in, in, yes, I think people, uh, the culture is telling us, even popular culture is telling us, that people are still very much into story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just because it's easy and we're lazy and blah, blah, that we sit down and binge Netflix for four or five hours at a time. It's that we crave storytelling and good storytelling, no matter where it comes from. Now, I think that the downside of this is that in church, the type of songs that we used to write and sing are not really so much the coin of the realm anymore. So not only is an old guy like me kind of a relic because of my age sometimes, but the type of communication and the storytelling that I do musically seems to be a little more rare. So when I get in situations where I'm mentoring young uh, Christians who have uh, you know hopes and dreams to be artistic in, in, the, in the faith, um, you know, I tell them it's not just writing worship songs for the congregation, but there's a lot of storytelling that we can do aside from that. So I hope by example and by encouragement that I can uh, that I can give folks a broader vision with that stuff. Yeah. Well, a song set to music, a word set to music, a story well told, I think will always be uh, will be popular because we we share some things in common as we walk through life, and um, you just have this. Uh, uncanny ability to communicate well um, and to uh, to set it to music is such a, a gift. Now, as I mentioned, you're going to be uh, here in the Portland metro area on Saturday night, 7 o'clock. I think the doors open at 6.30. You're going to be at the uh, Madrona Hill Cafe here in Portland. Now, the, it's lem- limited capacity, so I would encourage you to be in touch. There's a $10 cover charge, but you have an opportunity to have an intimate evening with Bob Bennett. 
Can't beat that. And then on Resurrection Sunday morning, 1045 at Bethany Bible Church, you're going to be performing and uh, uh, the pastor is going to be speaking as well. It's going to be a wonderful morning as we celebrate the uh, the completed work of Christ. Um, any um, any insight on what our, our listeners might expect at either venue this weekend? Well, I mean, in a sense, I, you know, I hope to, to, to do uh, to uh, the uh, joy and edification of anyone who might attend what I sort of always do. It'll be me and an acoustic guitar, singing songs, telling stories, um, and just, uh, you know, I hope that, you know, my, my hope is always that when people hear these songs, that they might find a place for themselves in them somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, the listener is always the arbiter of what goes on, so... You know, I hope that people will enjoy some of these things, and I, and I frank, you know, always hope that the Holy Spirit might use some of these songs as soundtrack music to do things, uh, to do the deep kind of ministry that only He can do. So, um, or as I often say, even if we just keep you out of trouble for an hour and a half. <laughs> that's, that, that's good work if you can get it. Well, I'm telling you, you put your music uh, together with Pastor Grace uh, speaking on Resurrection Sunday morning. It doesn't get much better than that. So let, let me just tell you, it's going to be a great morning. And for folks who don't have a, a home church or you're looking for some place for something special on uh, Easter Sunday morning, uh, Bethany Bible Church uh, in Portland is uh, one to consider. Well, Bob Bennett, it's a pleasure to talk with you once again. And we just want to welcome you back to the Portland metro area. I know you're coming back this weekend. Uh, so we look forward to uh, to having you back home. Thank you so very, very much. I appreciate it. God bless. Bye-bye. Again, um, Bob Bennett will be uh, in Portland on Saturday at 7 o'clock p.m. at the Madrona Hill Cafe and on Resurrection Sunday morning at Bethany Bible Church. Up next, we're going to talk with Peter Brooks, Senior Fellow in National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. Secretary of State's been in Russia. We'll find out uh, what to anticipate and what the challenges might be. Peter Brooks up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show 21 minutes after 5 o'clock. Well, U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson issued a stern ultimatum to Russia today. Side with America and its allies on Syria or stand alongside Syrian President Bashar Assad, Iran, and the militant group Hezbollah. We want to... Um, want to relieve the suffering of the Syrian people. He went on to say Russia can be part of that future and play an important role, or Russia can maintain its alliance with this group, uh, which we believe is not going to serve Russia's interests longer term. Well, the Secretary of State met with Russian authorities today, not Vladimir Putin, given the events that took place uh, last uh, weekend, but um, here to talk with us about this important meeting, the first of a cabinet member of the of the uh, Trump administration. Peter Brooks joins us. He's a senior fellow with the National Security Affairs, uh, um, Douglas uh, and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Well, this was a little bit different meeting than was originally anticipated when the date was set. It was preceded by a very brief meeting of some of the G7 partners as uh, well as diplomats uh, from a number of uh, Middle Eastern countries, Jordan, uh, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, the United Arab Emirates and others. Uh, Help us to understand what happened today and what this meeting, this brief meeting uh, met uh, previous to the uh, ultimate Russian um, face off. Well, Secretary Tillerson just arrived in Moscow today, late afternoon, um, East Coast time, uh, or actually Moscow time. Uh, his, his big meetings will be tomorrow. tomorrow. Uh, okay. He'll be meeting with his, his counterpart. Yeah, I mean, he's just come out of, he came out of Italy today. Mm-hmm. We have to remember that Russia is seven hours ahead of us, so they're, they're well into, uh, 
well into the night there. And I think today is going to be the big, the big meetings. Uh, he may have met with embassy officials. He may have had a meeting with the Russians. I don't, I don't suspect so. I didn't see any reporting of that, but I think the big meetings are tomorrow. The question is whether he meets with Putin. Um, it won't be necessary. He can meet with the foreign minister. Uh, I, I suspect that Putin may want to meet with him to send some messages uh, back to Washington, uh, private messages, and also to take a measure of Tillerson, who he knows, uh, but a, a measure of the new administration and its, and its policy. So a very important meeting. I would say that uh, if it's with Putin or just in, in Moscow in general, but I, I think uh, Tillerson's hand was strengthened by the decision of the Trump administration to strike uh, Syria uh, last week. Um, it uh, shows that the, that the administration is uh, serious about international affairs and that it will act with resolve when it, it feels that American interests are, are jeopardized. Now, how important was the meeting earlier in the day with uh, a G7 summit uh, members and some additional Middle Eastern countries in Italy today? Well, yeah, he, he's been meeting. He's been at the G7 for a day or two now. Um, he, of course, that's important. These are the largest countries, uh, largest economies in the world. Uh, and um, they, you know, obviously would wanted to hear some thoughts about what America's policy towards Syria is going to be, uh, or is this just a one-off operation to uh, punish the Bashar al-Assad regime for its use of chemical weapons against its own its own people? Uh, the Middle Eastern countries uh, normally more were there than otherwise, uh, just because of the size of their economy. G7 means the seven largest economies in the world. But they were, you know, essentially there to, to to share some thoughts and to hear some thoughts about uh, about Syria. They're they're heavily interested in the outcome in Syria, and many of them are involved uh, militarily uh, in what's happening against ISIS. And uh, many of them would like to see Bashar al-Assad uh, lose power in Syria. And they're also concerned about the relationship with. Um, between uh, you know Iran's descendants in the region, so there's a lot of things, uh, a lot of things to talk about. What's the purpose of Tillerson's uh, trip to Russia? This is the first with the a cabinet member of the Trump administration. Uh, should our expectations be high given events over the weekend, or is this just that first face-off? Although Tillerson is is uh, not a stranger to Vladimir Putin, but is this this first uh, face-off that's anticipated when a new administration comes to town? What might we anticipate? What's the purpose? Well, I think I think you know this is uh, the, this was an important important meeting even before the events of mm-hmm. of last weekend. Russia is a major power. Uh, Tillerson hasn't been there in, in this capacity. Uh, the Trump Russia has been at the forefront of uh, many American discussions, as you know, everything from security to to domestic to domestic issues. Um, so I think, it, you know, this was important regardless. Um, you know, you, and sometimes you have to go places where the meetings may be a little bit uh, difficult. I think they're much more difficult now because of the actions that are taken against Syria, uh, which is an ally of Russia. Uh, uh, but, you know, this is going to uh, an opportunity to talk about Syria. That'll be front and center. But there's a lot of other issues uh, on the table. Uh, it might, might come up depending on uh, how much time he has to discuss these sort of things. Recently, Russia has been accused by the United States of violating a regular uh, arms control treaty called the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty or INF Treaty. But the Russians seem to be supporting the Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, some of the military commanders in their annual business uh, back in Washington have talked about support for the Taliban. Uh, Russia says it's because. They don't trust the Afghan government to be able to deal 
uh, with ISIS in Afghanistan. We just limited at this point. And you're breaking up just a bit, so we're, we're missing some of what you're saying. I don't know if you're on the move or <laughs> what, but we're no, missing a little bit of what you're place, saying. But, uh, in one place, but there's, there's concerns about Russia's involvement with, uh, with the Taliban in Afghanistan. Um, so there's, uh, you know, there's other things that there's talk about, obviously, Ukraine and, and Crimea and the crisis, uh, you know, the crisis that continues, uh, that continues there. Um, and, uh, you know, and Russia's unfortunate, uh, harassment of U.S. ships and aircraft, it's, uh, military, snap military maneuvers, uh, in Europe, um, it's threatening posture towards uh, some of the Baltic countries. So there's, there's a lot of things to talk about. Uh, beyond Syria, but I imagine that Syria will dominate the conversation. Yeah, certainly as events unfolded uh, most recently. Uh, in a meeting like this, and again, the first of its kind for this new administration, um, is it typical for agreements to be made, for uh, future meetings to be scheduled? Um, what what might we expect will happen as a consequence of this initial meeting that obviously will lead to uh, further discussions? Well, you never know. There could be a breakthrough. I mean, the Russians could bring something to the table. I would suspect that it's, you know, that uh, a lot of times big agreements are saved for meetings between uh, the leaders, you know, such mm-hmm. as the Trump-Putin summit, which might come at some point. There's a possibility of them meeting. You know, there's a lot of opportunities for major powers to meet, whether it's the G7, it's the G20. Uh, there's uh, APEC, which is an Asian organization. There's the United Nations. There's, there's all sorts of meetings throughout the year opportunities uh, for leaders to to meet with one another outside of a an official one-on-one sort of summit. I don't know. I, I it's I would I would keep my expectations modest. I think the Russians are pretty unhappy with what happened uh last Friday in Syria and they'll show some peak. Um but it you know this is an opportunity for some for some straight talk. Uh and you never know if the Russians could come with some sort of uh, proposal. But generally, you know, these sort of things, any sort of major agreements take some time and consideration in both countries' capitals before they actually are are finalized. So I would keep expectations modest. Uh, This is early in the new administration. It's Tillerson's first visit there as Secretary of State. He's obviously spent many time, spent much time there and negotiating energy deals for ExxonMobil, but I would I would keep my expectations modest at this point. Well, we certainly will watch with interest what happens over the next 28, uh, 24, 48 hours. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Again, Peter Brooks is a senior fellow in National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. Next, we're going to talk with Maggie Gallagher. She's a senior fellow with the American Principles Project. Last week, the Seventh Circuit Court wrote a, a rewrote rather the 1964 Civil Rights Act, effectively ruling that uh, Christians who hold to traditional views on sex and marriage are bigots. We'll find out how broad this decision is and what's likely to happen next. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. The headline in the article on the stream was, Did the Seventh Circuit Court Just Rule That Christians Are Bigots? Now, yesterday we talked about the decision that the Second Circuit Court uh, uh, was engaged in rewriting the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Well, now we're going to talk with Maggie Gallagher, who authored this uh, 
uh, this column. Um, Maggie Gallagher, as you may know, for 25 years has been a thought leader on life, on religious liberty, and especially marriage. She's the author of four books on the subject. Her latest book, Debating Same-Sex Marriage, was published in 2012 by Oxford University Press. After founding and running a think tank on marriage, the Institute for Marriage and Public Policy, she went on to co-found the National Organization for Marriage in 2007, which the Washington Post called the preeminent organization fighting the legalization of same-sex marriage. Her weekly standard piece, Banned in Boston, launched a national debate over the religious liberty consequences of same-sex marriage, and she stepped down from the board of the National Organization for Marriage in the summer of 2012. She's currently serving as a senior fellow with the American Principles Project, and we are delighted to have her join us uh, now to talk about the uh, second, uh, rather the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals that rewrote this uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act last week. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's great to be here again. I really appreciate it. We talked a bit yesterday on the program about the decision by the uh, Seventh uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, but didn't really wade into the implications, in particular as it relates to religious liberty. First of all, let's begin. I'd like you to just explain what the Seventh Circuit Court uh, has done, uh, and then we can move on to the implications. Well, the iconic 1964 Civil Rights Act bans discrimination in employment um, on the basis of race and sex and religion and, I believe, national origin. And what the Seventh Circuit has just done, it says, okay, we know that sex discrimination means whether you're a man or a woman, but we just decided to read this statute now as if we had decided to ban national discrimination uh, uh, in employment based on sexual orientation. And the, the problem with this, among other things, mm-hmm. I mean, it's always a problem when courts just decide, hey, we're not going to say what the law really says. We're going to say what we think the law should say. It's a completely circumvents the democratic process. But it has this other problem, which is that there is no way any Congress we can imagine in the foreseeable future would have had would have added sexual orientation to this statute without simultaneously grappling and wrestling with the question of of conscience protections for religious organizations. And there are religious exemptions in the 64 Civil Rights Act, but they are not going to clearly apply in these circumstances, and it could become and may very quickly become a serious problem for Christian schools and Christian charities that uh, want to hire only people who agree with their church's teachings as teachers or as uh, ministers and leaders within these charities. We're talking uh, about one of the um, uh, judges who was responsible for writing the uh, opinion, who was a Reagan appointee, Judge Posner. He gave a, a uh, an anti-democratic justification. One of the lines he wrote, I would prefer to see us acknowledge openly that today we judges are imposing on a half-century-old statute a meaning of sex discrimination that the Congress that enacted it would not have accepted. So he's clearly admitting that what we're doing here is either uh, we're we're clairvoyant and trying to imagine what they might have done if if the decision were made today, but we are imposing our own view on the subject on a body of lawmakers that we know would not have accepted what we are about to do right now. So they're not interpreting the law, they are crafting the law. Yeah, or as he likes to say, we're just helping Congress update these statutes. And somehow, in the middle of these huge controversial issues where both sides have been fighting about it for years, 
we're just going to put our thumb on the scale and say, okay, on this issue, the left wins. Because, you know, Congress is just too busy to update all these statutes. You have to, I mean, it provoked this uh, discussion in um, among people I know with, well, at least he's honest about it. But hmm. I kind of think hypocrisy is preferable to just saying, okay, I'm a judge. I get to do what I want. And uh, as, as one of the commenters said, a guy named Josh Blackman, he says, you know, Posner claims, well, I, we're, I'm just taking advantage of what we've learned over the last half century. No, you're taking advantage of life tenure. You don't have to. You can just decide where the country is because you don't have to actually ask the country, is this where you are and face an election? Yeah, yeah. You're not accountable for the decisions that you made. Josh Blackman also said the power of the courts is almost always used in one direction to advance the moral views of the left. So it promotes one particular view uh, to the exclusion of all others. Well, yes, almost. And whenever the courts weigh in and overrule a statute on what you might say in a way that conservatives like, it's almost always because there's something really clear in the Constitution about it. So, you know, there is something in the Constitution that says something about guns. You know, you may not, you may not like it, liberals, but there it is, the right to bear arms. But where in the Constitution does it say sexual orientation is a protected class? And if religious liberty and sexual orientation conflict, sexual orientation should win. Where does it say that abortion is a constitutional right? You can't, you you know, judges, it's not always one right answer. That's why we need judges. They have to interpret and then all come to the same answer. But interpreting in good faith means that there is some reasonable argument uh, that when you look at the wording of a statute or the wording of the Constitution, that this credibly means what you say it does. And it is the characteristic of the of the left that it increasingly relies on courts mm-hmm. to circumvent the whole democratic process. Well, I appreciate your emphasizing that it does, in fact, demean uh, voting citizens, that their rights to make up their minds about what their prevailing priorities ought to be. And it undermines uh, the, the democratic um, uh, possibilities within the general population. Well, yeah, it's a real direct slap in the face. I mean, if you there were hundreds of thousands of people in, in the property battle in California on gay marriage on both sides who went out and knocked on doors and they gave their money and they fought for what they thought is right. And, you know, if you get legislation wrong, you can come back next year and you can keep trying to persuade your fellow citizens. But in this case, when the court steps in and says, no, one side, we're going to constitutionalize their values, it, it's really, it demeans and it takes away the right of all of us. What, what's the point of having a democracy if the courts are going to decide the most controversial questions on the idea that that's somehow helping the, dem- the, the legislatures who are having trouble resolving it? They're having trouble resolving it because it's a big issue. The American people should be consulted. Absolutely. One of the questions you raise, and rightly so, that I think I want to emphasize in our remaining time, you ask the question, why is this a problem for Christians and other traditional faith communities? And there are some important issues under that heading as well. Right, because uh, under the heading of sexual orientation, what's being endorsed is not just a status, right? Okay, you can say, well, being gay doesn't mean I'm not a good Christian because I accept the teachings of Christ. But in this decision, it's clear that it means the right to have sex however you want, essentially. And that's fine if you're talking about the government not preventing you from having sex however you want. 
but it's a direct hit on traditional belief communities for whom uh, a different standard of sexual morality is very important. It's very hard to create, pass that down if you can't, aren't allowed to have schools where the leadership team endorses and attempts to live by these. And instead, the courts step in and tell you, no, 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 that's, you're endorsing bigotry. So you can't fire that teacher who entered a gay marriage. That is now a violation of the 64 Civil Rights Act. Now, we don't know for sure how this will all play out, and the issue will go to the Supreme Court, but this is not even the Ninth Circuit. This is now the Seventh Mm -hmm. Circuit, which is stepping in very strongly to suggest that opposition to gay marriage or gay sexual relationships is, in this court's mind, the equivalent to being a racist. That spells a lot of trouble. The uh, Civil Rights Act throws the meaning of the religious exemptions in that, or the reinterpretation of it, Uh, the religious exemptions in that act into deep new uncertainty, as you write. What should we be looking for in terms of whether or not religious exemptions will be able to withstand this new interpretation that, as you point out, will likely be uh, resolved in the Supreme Court, but are being called into question at this point? Well, the most important thing would be for Congress to step forward and reestablish by a a majority vote in a Republican-controlled Congress that sex discrimination refers to discrimination between men and women. It is not about gay and lesbian discrimination. And uh, failing that to craft strong, protective conscience protections like the First Amendment Defense Act and attach them to the 64 Civil Rights Act or uh, indicate that they apply there as well. Uh, the Republicans in Congress are not very inclined to act on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, they are more inclined to let things lie. So the third thing you have to watch is whether we get another Supreme Court, of Trump, President Trump gets another Supreme Court appointment in the next couple of years. I hope that one of the liberals of the court decides to resign uh, and we get another chance to, to create a working majority, which is in favor of interpreting the Constitution as it really is and not just the way liberals would like it to read. There is a way to amend the Constitution. Yes. It's very arduous. I've tried. Believe me, I know how arduous <laughs> it is. But somehow liberals never have to do that. They just have to get the judges to endorse their new theory and the Constitution somehow changes. How so broad? We, to, we need those are three, the three things we need to do. Yes. Yeah. How broadly is this Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals decision? Uh, in terms of its application, this is the Seventh Circuit. Is this a national uh, policy now, or w- how should we understand this uh, as it's been uh, interpreted? No, I'm just here. You're catching me googling. So there are, uh, I believe, eleven circuit courts, and they all control uh, different numbers mm-hmm. of states. And the Seventh Circuit is located in the Middle West. Give me, give me a second here. I can tell you. <laughs> Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin are the main states that are directly affected. Okay. Well, we will certainly but I'm pretty keep... sure the Ninth Circuit there in Oregon is going to be chiming in very shortly. Yeah, I have no doubt. In fact, I'm surprised they didn't originate the idea already. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, for talking with us and helping us to appreciate the significance of what the Seventh Circuit has done and to keep our eyes uh, and ears open and to continue to communicate with lawmakers about what they need to do in this situation. Thank you so much. Take care. Appreciate it. Again, Maggie Gallagher, uh, the column um, that you can find on the stream is, did the Seventh Circuit just rule that Christians are bigots? And the answer would be yes. Uh, Whether or not that decision stands, only time 
And the Supreme Court will tell. She was mentioning maybe a Supreme Court justice will step down. Ruth Bader Ginsburg earlier today referred to Lindsey Graham as one of the women serving in the U.S. Senate. So maybe sooner rather than later, we'll have to see. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back to our final segment on this Tuesday afternoon. Tomorrow on the program is our annual Africa New Life Radiothon. Africa New Life, as you may recall, exists to see people in the country of Rwanda come to Christ, as well as provide opportunities for the completion of education for young people there. It was founded by a pastor in 2001 uh, with about 30 sponsored children. He was a pastor in Africa who wanted to do something following the fallout of the genocide that took place some 22 years ago now, but back then it was uh, very fresh. Today it's grown to approximately 5,000 sponsored children, two primary schools, one of which is number five academically in the country, seven orphanages, two churches, a substantial college scholarship program for genocide survivors, practical skills and discipleship training for women, and many other ministries as well. They provide approximately a million meals every year to needy children and families in Rwanda. In 2009, they partnered with the Luis Palau uh, association and they shared the gospel with over 90,000 people in Rwanda with more than 8,000 making decisions for Christ. So that gives you a little bit of a background of Africa New Life. Now we claim it to, to be our own because while approximately 115 African nationals make up the Rwandan staff, uh, plus 10 support staff here in the United States. The headquarters is right here in the Portland area. And so this is a ministry that we claim to be our own. This year, we're going to be focusing on Robavu. This is a lush and mountainous district. It's located in the western region of Rwanda, home to more than 403,000 people with a predominantly female population. It's one of the most populated districts that lies on the shores of Lake Kivu. Now, Robavu was impacted by the genocide in 1994, has experienced prolonged instability there. And part of that is due to its proximity to the unrest in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It borders the Congo. And because of the insecurity in Rabavu, most children there live in extreme poverty. And I want to bold and and underline the word extreme. They struggle with famine. They can't attend school, even though it's mandatory. And these children experience poorer health, a higher rate of HIV infection due to cross-border trading, drug activity, and prostitution. Well, in the fall of 2016, Africa New Life launched its sponsorship program there and saw more than 500 children sponsored within the first month uh, through faithful church partners in the U.S., Um, And we're delighted about that. They began construction on a new school, a church, sponsorship offices there in Rabavu in February of this year. And Friends of the Ministry joined Africa New Life staff and leadership for the celebration of the community's launch in March. So this is a fresh outreach of Africa New Life in the most uh, impoverished area in the country. And we're going to ask you tomorrow to help us to provide the food that's needed so that these children will not only survive but thrive. They'll be able to go to school as is uh, required, and in order that they might um, uh, they might move forward. So that's going to be the focus of our campaign tomorrow, and we hope you will take full advantage of the opportunity to come alongside this local ministry to minister to children in Robavu in, um, in Rwanda. So be sure to listen from 4 to 6. You can also go to kpdq.com, and you can uh, read some of the information there. And if you decide to give early, you can give online. But we'll be uh, providing you with an opportunity to hear more about this uh, community, to hear from the uh, uh, many of the children who are struggling and uh, starving there uh, because uh, the leaders and uh, David Harms recently returned from 
uh, this small community in Rwanda. So that's coming up tomorrow. And then on Thursday, we're going to... um, Talk with Elizabeth Thompson. She's the author of When God Says Wait, Navigating Life's Detours and Delays Without Losing Your Faith, Your Friends, or Your Mind. There's a good thing in waiting. In fact, we're told that they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. It doesn't feel like that in the midst of it, but we are commanded on occasion to wait. And so we're going to talk about what that looks like and how you can do so in a way that's Christ-honoring and you can glean everything out of that Uh, that weight room experience that God intends. And then on Friday, we're looking forward to sharing with you a new uh, audio special, Thief on the Cross, uh, is going to be presented for the two hours of the program, giving the perspective of one of the thieves who uh, was hung on a cross next to Jesus, whose story uh, we are somewhat familiar with, but uh, you're going to have an opportunity to consider from that vantage point, from his perspective, that experience uh, of being uh, crucified uh, next to Uh, Jesus Christ. So looking forward to sharing that with you on Good Friday. Okay, well, we are just about out of time. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing and engineering a portion of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Look forward to talking with you again tomorrow for our Africa New Life Radiothon. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.